Um, the scripture reading this evening will be found in Matthew 16, uh, 24 through 26. Sorry. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I hope that you are enjoying this somewhat special and unique series of sermons we've been doing on Sunday nights. We ask some of our guys on staff to share some of the verses of Scripture that really mean a lot to them that have shaped their ministry and or their lives. And one of the hopes of this series, there are many hopes and goals, but one of those hopes was that you, the congregation, would get to know the guys a little bit better as they shared personal stories and personal reflections on some of these passages that have really impacted their lives. And so when I was putting this schedule together and this series together, I realized that I had to come up with a life verse on which to speak and so that was more difficult than I had envisioned it would be how do you narrow it down to one passage of scripture and that was really difficult of course some might suggest Acts 20 verse 7 when Paul is preaching until midnight and in verse 9 it says that he is going on and on and if you know the story you know there's a young man named Eutychus who is sitting in the window of the third Uh, third floor listening to Paul go on and on and he falls asleep and he not only falls asleep he falls out of the window all the way to his death below the text says and I love this verse he was picked up dead (laughs) cause of death preaching so but that's not my life verse (laughs) and you're thankful right but how do you narrow it down and choose one verse that really shapes or guides or even maybe describes your your life your ministry that defining verse of scripture because I've been guided by probably like you and and I've been blessed by many passages of scripture during different seasons of my life you know we're told the bible the God's word is living and active and I've certainly seen the dynamic nature of God's word as, as different parts of God's word apply to me at different seasons of life and different situations and give me hope and challenge me and, and uh, give me comfort and, and they do different things. And so certainly God's word is dynamic. But I chose a scripture that, that I really try to keep in front of me. It's a challenge for me. One that I try to allow to guide not only my ministry but the way I live my life but to get to that specific scripture first I want to back up and give you a little bit of history I never planned on being a minister some people who are ministers they they want to be a minister their whole lives you ask them when they're a child or maybe when they're in high school or even in their when they're in college what do you want to do when you grow up I want to be a minister that that was never the answer to that question when someone asked me that I I, you know, for some people, it's, they're wired that way, or they had an, a minister that was very influential in their life, and, and they see that mentoring, and they want to do that. Um, but that wasn't the case for me. And so I never really wanted to be a minister. 
I never really felt that sense of, of calling that some people feel. Maybe God was calling, but I, I wasn't picking up the phone. And so I didn't have that sense of direction, that sense of calling to go into ministry. And so when I went to Oklahoma Christian in the fall of 1987, I went there to study radio and television. You see, I wanted to be a sportscaster. The reason I wanted to be a sportscaster is because earlier I wanted to be a professional athlete. But that dream soon crashed into the reality of knowing you have to be pretty good at sports to be a professional athlete. So that dream went to the wayside, and I thought, okay, what's the next best thing to playing sports? Talking about sports. And so that's what I decided that I would do, and that's what I did when I went to Oklahoma Christian. I actually studied that. I was involved in the, the radio station on campus, actually broadcast the basketball games on the radio on campus, really enjoyed that. But then I realized that that really wasn't my dream either. That that's a very difficult industry to break into. And so I decided about halfway through college or two-thirds or three-fourths of the way through college to switch my major. I stayed in the communication department and actually ended up getting a degree in public relations and advertising. I didn't want to lose all those communication classes, all those credits that I had. And so I graduated with an undergraduate degree in public relations and advertising. But especially that last semester, God was working on me. God was nudging me toward ministry. And I'll save you the details and the story of how it all went down, but God, I think, was opening some doors for me. And yes, he had to sort of push me through the door, but I really believe God was leading me in that. And so I ended up getting a job as a youth minister for a wonderful congregation in Denison, Texas. And I remember my first day on the job. They actually gave me an office. <laughs> and on the desk was a big desk phone. And, and there was a typewriter. Ask your parents about what that is. And behind me were these beautiful oak bookshelves. And so I went in there on that first day, and I only had about 20 books, mostly textbooks from my classes. And I put them on my beautiful oak bookshelf, and I spun around in my rolly chair, and I remember thinking, okay, now what? <laughs> now what happens? And that's when the whirlwind called ministry began for me. Since that time, you'll be happy to know that I have received some training, and some education in ministry and the biblical text, and so um, you can feel good about that. But even early on, I remember I wanted to learn. I wanted to know how to do ministry. And so I watched and I listened to other ministers. And I asked them questions. And I, I saw how they led and how they did ministry. And I read books and I went to seminars. And I remember that first year, Carrie Ann and I decided to go to a youth ministry seminar in Lubbock, Texas. It was at Lubbock Christian University. And we go to this seminar to learn how to do youth ministry. And I remember when we registered and checked in, they gave us a big notebook. And inside the notebook, there were schedules and class notes and all that good stuff you get when you go to a seminar. But I remember on the cover of the notebook, which, by the way, I still have in my office, on my shelves, with a few more than 20 books, on the front of this notebook is this phrase, he must increase, I must decrease. I took a picture of the notebook. 
That's what it looks like. He must increase, I must decrease. What a great theme for a ministry seminar. Learning how to do ministry, learning how to lead others in a way that draws attention away from self and to God. And so I was so intrigued with that theme, with that idea, what that looked like in ministry. And I remember that wasn't just a theme of a seminar, that was a verse of scripture in the Bible. And so that weekend or that week, we learned about what it means to do ministry that way. And I began to understand that my job as a minister is to be, yes, to be present and active, but also to get out of the way so that God is the main attraction, so that people are drawn to him. I decided that's the way I needed to do ministry, and that's the way I needed to do life. Now, I will tell you, I am a work in progress. I am far from perfect. There are many days when that formula is out of balance in my life, but that is my goal. That is what I'm aiming for, and maybe it should be yours as well. Whatever your job, whatever your role, whatever your place in the family, in the home, in society, whatever your place, maybe those six words should help set your priorities and guide your life. So let's look at that passage of Scripture. Do you know who spoke these words? Do you know? Let's open our Bibles and take a look. John chapter 3. Early in his ministry, Jesus is out with his disciples. They're in the Judean countryside, and they are teaching, they are baptizing. But the man God ordained to prepare the way for Jesus, he and his disciples are also out there teaching and baptizing. His name was John. We call him John the Baptist. Not because that was his last name or his religion. That's what he did. He baptized and so a dispute is sparked between some of, some of John's disciples uh, with this man, this Jewish man. And this, this dispute seems to evolve into a debate about actually John and Jesus. And so notice what happens next. John chapter 3, verse 26. They came to John, his disciples, and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. Like any good business advisors, these followers of John were concerned about the apparent competition. This guy, Jesus, whom you've talked about, John, he's getting more people. He's getting more attention. He's getting more members. If it comes down to a vote, John, I think Jesus might win. And they expected John to be upset, to be jealous. And that is a reasonable response, isn't it? Even in our time, in our day. It sounds like something a, a well-meaning church consultant might say, or a concerned member, or even a leader in a congregation might say, you know, the church down the street, they're getting more people than you. They're drawing more attention than you. You know, they're, they're offering this or they're offering that. Yeah, I see you have a playground outside. They have a playground inside their building. They have fancy coffee inside their building. Their preacher wears jeans when he preaches. Amen. Okay. 
More people are going there. They're drawing crowds there. Maybe you should do something different. We can understand that mentality. We can understand that approach. John's disciples are worried that he's not getting enough attention, that he is not drawing the crowd that he demands. And so how might John respond? Take the bait and play the comparison game, right? That's what we do so often. Get irritated, get defensive, let those fires of competition begin to fuel inside you. Well, we'll have to sabotage him or we'll have to take his people away or I need to talk against him or I need to do more. Notice John's response, verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Some versions say, he must increase. I must decrease. Verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. I love what John does here. His disciples, his followers say, John, aren't you upset? Look, Jesus is getting more people. Aren't you jealous? Shouldn't we do something? Shouldn't we put more yard signs out or do something? And John says, no, no. Let me clarify my role to you. So John is quick to clarify his role and his relationship with the one who is actually sent from heaven, Jesus. I'm not the long-awaited Messiah. I'm only the forerunner, the one who prepares the way, the one who is sent ahead of him, John says. And maybe they don't understand, and so he decides to paint them a picture to help them get it. He says, imagine a wedding, a beautiful wedding, and at the front of the room is the bride and the groom. And yes, the wedding party is up there, but we know that all eyes in the room are on the bride and the groom. Isn't her dress pretty? Don't they seem happy? And everyone is watching the happy couple as they join together in marriage. Now, there is a best man, right? But he's not front and center. He's off to the side. He is in a support role. His one job is to basically stand there without fainting, right? I mean, he might be asked to produce the ring on request and maybe later at the reception give a toast, but basically he's just supposed to stand there. But just imagine for a moment you're at a wedding, everyone's watching the bride and the groom, and all of a sudden the best man begins to walk toward the middle right in front of the bride and the groom. You would think, well, this must be a joke or something. What is he up to? This, this isn't normal. This isn't right. And what if the preacher, when he asked the I do question, what if the best man butted in and he answered for the groom? Let me answer that. Sir, I'll answer that question. You think that is so bizarre. It shouldn't be this way. 
And what if the, the best man was trying to, to move his way into every single picture, even moving the groom out of the way, and he was trying to get the pictures made with the bride? You would say, well, that's just, that's inappropriate. Because he should know his place, and that's not his place. He's trying to upstage the happy couple. He's trying to steal the bride. John says, I am the best man. Jesus is the groom. He is from God, not me. He speaks the words of life, not me. He is the long-awaited Messiah, not me. He is the Savior of the world, not me. And so he must increase. He is the one that is to be promoted. He is the one that is the main attraction. He should become greater, and I, in turn, should become less. People should be flocking to him, away from me and to him, John says. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's words when he said, we must learn to play great parts without pride and small parts without shame. And that is so true. And John understood that great kingdom truth. But I have to ask as I look at this text in John chapter 3, why is it there? Why did the gospel writer John include this story of John the Baptist and his interaction about Jesus and the followers of Jesus? The other gospel writers really don't mention it. So why is it there? What is its purpose? It doesn't seem significant. In fact, John himself tells us that Jesus did other things, right? Chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If I tried to put them all in here, we, there wouldn't be enough books to write about all that Jesus said and did. So why this story? Why this experience? I think maybe because it's so startling. It's so surprising. And because it strikes at the heart of humanity. His followers thought John would be upset. They thought he would be jealous. Most people would be. We don't like to be second fiddle. We don't like to be moved from the spotlight to the background. Something inside of us screams at us to promote us. We learn early on in life to become our own advocates, to push ourselves to the front, even if it means pushing others aside, to look out for number one. But John takes a different approach. His ego doesn't fuel his response, his faithfulness does. John humbly explains his purpose and the posture he takes to fulfill that purpose. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. My whole job, John says, my whole life's calling and purpose is to not arrange the spotlight so that they're shining on me, but to point them at Jesus so other people can see him more clearly. Someone, had call, has, someone has called John's ministry a ministry of introduction, introducing people to Jesus. You see, his primary role was to point people to Christ, to prepare their hearts and minds to welcome Jesus. My job and my life should be the same, and so should yours. Even if you're not a preacher or a missionary, or a shepherd. 
Ask yourself, what would my life look like if I promoted Jesus more than I promoted myself? Would my life look drastically different? Would my conversations be different? Would my stories be different? Would my nonverbals, my interactions, my choices, the way I go about doing work, the way I go about doing family and marriage and friendship, would it look differently if I promoted Jesus more than I promoted myself? John says, he must increase, I must decrease. It's a simple yet profound formula for not only a successful ministry, for a meaningful career, but for a life that really matters. Someone says, well, I I try to make a big deal of Jesus. I go to church, I pray in Jesus' name. I'm a Christian, I mean, you know, Christ, that's in the name, that's what the name I wear, Christian. I try to make a big deal of Jesus. But it's not just that Jesus must increase, it's that self must decrease. You see, you can't separate the two. There's an inverse relationship between them. To be very clear, diminishing self isn't the ultimate goal, praising God exalting Christ, making much of Jesus, that is the ultimate goal. But this goal cannot be reached without walking the path of self-denial. Let me see if I can help you remember it. Sometimes when you have an object, it helps remember it, right? So I have here a scale of justice, scales of justice. If you can't see it, I'm sorry, you should have sat closer to the front. Just kidding, you should have sat closer to the front. Um, everyone knows what this is. We really don't use these more uh, anymore, but we all understand the concept, right? Scales of justice, they're used in the, in, uh, to represent law in our country, and the idea is that there is balance there. And so if you put something heavy on one side, it goes down. The other side goes up. We all understand that concept. So if I were to put something like my car keys there, this side would go up, the other side or this side would go down, the other side would go up. It's an inverse relationship. There's a correlation there, but it's an inverse relationship. That's the idea, right? And so in this idea that John says, he, talking about Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. I must put more weight on the side of Christ. And when I do that, I'm also putting less emphasis on me. And so someone in the world who maybe isn't a believer, what does their scale of justice look like? I have a couple of coins here. This is a very sensitive scale, by the way. And so if this side represents Christ, this side represents me, someone who isn't a believer, who doesn't have Christ in his or her life, they're going to put their emphasis, their attention, their resources where? On the side of self. And what happens? It's weighted down. And what happens to the side of Christ? There's no emphasis, there's no weight there. It goes up, an inverse relationship. And it's understandable for someone who's not a believer, right? Now maybe they do invest in other people, but when it comes down to the dichotomy or the choice of self and Christ, they're going to choose self every time. Because Christ isn't in the picture. And this is what their life looks like. John comes along, 
And he says, that's not the way I want my life to look. His advisors, his followers say, now wait a second, John. Are you sure? Because isn't there something inside of you that says you need the attention? The attention that Jesus is getting, don't you want that? And John says, no, he must increase, I must decrease. And so John says, let's see if I can switch hands here, that I need to put my resources and attention on Christ. And when I do that, there is less attention on me. If I'm focusing resources on Christ, there's less on me. I want him to be in the spotlight, not me. And that is our goal as Christians. That's, that's the life we want to live. That is what Matthew 5, 16 looks like. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And you let your light shine before others so that they see your good deeds. And who do they praise? You? No. They praise your heavenly Father. More emphasis is given to him. Yes, you are doing the good deeds, but you're not receiving the applause, the attention. Christ is. Now, the truth is, for many of us, it looks something more like this. We are trying to put an emphasis on Christ. We are trying to draw attention to Christ. We're trying to speak of Christ, live for Christ, do things in the name of Christ. But at the same time, there is something in us, isn't there, that says, what about you? What about you getting some attention? What about you getting some pats on the back? What about you being recognized? And for many of us, it's this constant struggle, this constant tension going up and down, up and down. Because, let's be honest... This is tough. Emptying this side is very difficult. It goes against everything inside of us. Dying to self is not easy. And yet that's the calling of Christ on our lives. But it's not just his calling, it's how he lived his life. And so listen to this passage in Matthew chapter 16 read just a few moments ago, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Denying self, losing one's life, it's not an easy path to take. But I always try to remember, and I would encourage you to remember, that it doesn't happen overnight. That in many ways, it is a lifelong process. In his book, The End of Me, Kyle Adelman says this. Getting to the end of me is not just one moment in life. Reaching the end of me is a daily journey I must make because it's where Jesus shows up and my real life in him begins getting to the end of me is not an easy journey because me doesn't want to go there me doesn't like confrontation and me is most interested in the promotion and success of me me would much prefer to advance me not end me on this journey and it is a journey 
in this process, we hear voices around us. Just as John hears the voices of his disciples come to him, and these voices say to us, what about you? You deserve, you need, you've earned. Shouldn't you look after you? Shouldn't you promote you? And often those voices aren't really the voices around us. They are the voices within us, aren't they? And we listen to ourselves. We listen to that voice inside of us that says, what about you? Maybe it's time to not listen so much to that voice, but to speak into our lives. And maybe we should say something like this. I will begin to find meaning when I reach the end of me. I will begin to find meaning when I reach the end of me. Think about those words for a minute. Think about how you apply those words to your situation, to your life. I will begin to find meaning when I reach the end of me. What does that look like? What changes does that demand? There are so many practical applications for John's words. He must increase, I must decrease. But let me just share with you as we close. Let me just share three with you. Three things that I try to do, three things that I would encourage you to try to do. Again, there are many more, but let me just share three. And the first one is to acknowledge God. To actually, audibly acknowledge God in your conversations, in your prayers, in your casual interactions with others, certainly in those meaningful, deep conversations. Acknowledge the goodness of God in good times and in difficult times. You know, we talk about praising God, singing praises to God, giving glory to God, and we do that fairly well in our singing because those songs are written that way, aren't they? They are declarations of praise. But what about just in our conversations, even in our worship time, in our prayers? How often do we declare the goodness of God? How often do we make statements like that? We're, we're really good at asking God for things and, and, and other areas like that. But what about declaring the goodness of God? That's what those words mean, praise and glory. The book of Psalms, the whole collection of Psalms, that's what they are, declaring the glory and the goodness of God. Give God the credit. Speak of God. Well, I don't know how God works. I understand. But that doesn't mean you can't give God credit for the good things in your life. That you can't acknowledge that God is even there in the bad times in your life. That you can't share with others what God has done in your life. That you can't point people to God with your words, with your life. Acknowledge God. Number two, affirm others. Take the time to affirm others. You know, the comparison game is so easy to play. There was someone always near us who does it better, right? It's so easy to compare ourselves to others. And when we do that, we don't acknowledge their success because we want that success for ourselves. We don't acknowledge their victories because we want those victories. Take the time 
to just affirm other people. Maybe they do it differently than you. Maybe they do it better than you. Tell them, I appreciate how you do that. You did a great job with that. Take the time to affirm others because when we affirm others, it draws tension away from us and on to them. And finally, act anonymously. This is very difficult sometimes, isn't it? Try it. Maybe give sacrificially and anonymously. Do something nice for someone without any possibility of being seen or credited for it. Try giving and serving without drawing excessive attention to yourself. It's very biblical. Jesus said, even in the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll get to very soon on Sunday mornings, he said, when you give, don't announce it with trumpets. Don't draw attention to yourself. Why? Because you're giving for the wrong reason. Because your scale is way out of balance. And so let me encourage you to do something. Give, act, serve in a way that you know you will not get the credit. There's going to be something inside of you that wants to speak up. Hey, I did that. <laughs> That's for me. But resist that voice. And tell that voice that you will find your true purpose. You will begin to find your true purpose at the end of you. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. A divine formula for a life that truly matters. What does it look like in your life? To which side is your scale tipping right now? And maybe it's time to make some changes, to realign some priorities, to reorder your life in a way where you can say, he is increasing, I am decreasing. Tonight, we want to offer an invitation to you, an opportunity for you to confess, to ask for prayers of support, certainly a time for you to say, I'm ready to give my life to Christ, to be baptized into Christ, to begin a life lived to honor Christ. I'm ready to point the spotlights away from me and on to him. By the way you live, by the things you do, the decisions you make, by your obedience to him. If that's the case, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing.